Genesis 2, 4 through 15, reads as follows. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and Ankh stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Well, good morning. Hope your morning got off to a good start. I was uh, getting ready to come over to church, and my five-year-old uh, was complaining about her banana, and she was not happy. And then I said, well, I don't have time to hear your complaints because I'm trying to you know, just finish up a few things before we go. And she said, are you preaching? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, not again. <laughs> so I don't know how you feel this morning, but here we are. Here we are again. Yeah, thank you. Please, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so we are continuing here in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 1 and the creation of humanity. And we're going to give another run this morning, because it's actually a part one and a part two to the creation of humanity, the end of Genesis chapter one, and then what we just read this morning, uh, Genesis chapter two. So we're going to look at how humanity was not only created, as we saw last week, to be the king and queen of the world, but how we see again here, or we see here in Genesis two, that humanity was created to be priests, this may not be as obvious uh, reading through it any more than it was obvious that humanity was created to be king and queen. So we're going to take some time uh, unpacking this and understanding uh, humanity's dual role as priest kings. It's going to be important for fully understanding the story that is going to emerge then uh, throughout the scriptures. And not only is it going to be important to understand humanity's role as priest, as it relates to the unfolding of the scriptures, but it's also going to be important for you and I here in the 21st century in our context, thinking about what is our role in the world? 
What is our vocation? What is uh, Genesis' ancient vision of the human being and relationship to the world have to do with our lives? So we're going to be looking at that. As I've said previously, the Genesis account wasn't uh, written with all the modern scientific questions in mind. It was written to provide a theological framework for understanding core aspects of reality, the nature of the world, the nature of humanity, the nature of God. So maybe you woke up this morning asking yourself, who am I? Who am I? Well, I don't know who you are, but I know who you should be. And so we're going to be looking at that today. Now, I want to give a fair warning at the outset, though. There's going to be a fair bit of information. I kept writing this, and I would chop it down, and then it would grow, and it would chop it down and grow, and it ended on the grow side. So this is a big, uh, this is a big thick sermon. If you're new to the Bible, or perhaps you're not even a Christian, this, you're just here kind of visiting, checking things out, just stay on my wing. I'm going to do my best to lead you all the way uh, safely home. If new ideas are flying at you too fast, then maybe just take the hand of the person next to you and just hold, hold their hand throughout. I'm sure they won't mind. We're a very hospitable church. If the oxygen mask drops down, just put yours on first and then help the children next to you, and we will, we will make it through, uh, I promise. So as in previous weeks, we're going to be, have two parts of this sermon. So the first thing I want to do is I want to walk us through Genesis chapter 2 and show from Genesis chapter 2 what we've read, how humanity was created to be priests of the world. And since it's not super obvious from the text to modern readers, we're going to spend a fair amount of time there. And then I want to draw out the implications of what this means for us today. All right? So let's head into our text in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 gives us a bird's eye view of all six days of creation. So we saw we've seen that, right? But Genesis 2 zeroes in on day 6 of creation and particularly shows us the creation of humanity. Now, Adam is created first and then Eve is created in the next part of Genesis 2. We're looking at the first part of Genesis 2. Uh, and so we're not going to see Eve show up, but everything that is said of Adam by extension is going to uh, overflow into Eve. So we're, we're uh, pulling humanity together as a whole in our discussion here this morning. And there's a lot to see here in this text. So let me just note a few highlights that were read for us. We read that God created the man uh, out of the dust of the ground. In fact, uh, Adam's name means ground. Adam, Adama. So he, uh, he is named after the ground to show kind of his solidarity with the ground. But then we read that God breathed into him the breath of life and made him alive. And then in verse 8, we read that God planted a garden in the land of Eden and placed Adam in this garden. We read in verse 9 that the garden was full of fruit trees presumably animals that show up a little bit later in uh, Genesis chapter 2. We didn't read about those, but they show up as well. Then in verses 10 through 14, we read about a river that flows out of Eden and then divides into four and then spreads out into the whole world. And then finally, in verse 15, we read that Adam, here in this garden, was appointed the job of working and keeping it. So what do we make of all of this? Is this just a primeval picture of the idyllic, symbiotic relationship between man and nature, untainted by modern technology and contrivance? Perhaps this is like Genesis' version of 
transcendentalism, like Henry David Thoreau, if you've read Thoreau. He lived at Walden Pond for two years you know, by himself, just communing with nature. Right? Was he trying to get back to what we read in Genesis chapter 2 here, just the ideal life, just man and nature? Well, Genesis is giving us a picture of the ideal relationship between humanity and the world, but the ideal relationship is not picking fruit from trees and petting tame deer. Right? That's not what Genesis is revealing to us. Genesis is doing something different. As we saw last week in Genesis 1, 26, and what follows, we read that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. I went into a lot of detail about this last week, so I'm not going to recap all, I'm not going to uh, restate all of it, just recap the main idea, which is in the ancient world, Genesis is, was in the ancient world that Genesis was written to, the expression image and likeness of God was a royal title. It was given to the king. It was used uh, only of the king. So the king who existed in God's image and likeness was a living, represent, living representative of the God. So in the ancient world, you'd have some god, a pagan god, and, and he would have some kingdom, which would be an earthly kingdom, and the king would claim to be or would say that he was the image of the god. And he would say that his origin really was from heaven. Though he was born on the earth, his origin, his spiritual origin was from heaven. And so he stood as part on the earth as the representative of God's family, of the, of the family of the gods. And so he stood on the earth representing the gods to the people and the people back to God. But in his own person, he was the mediator of God, not the mediator in the sense like he stood kind of removed and brought two parties together and helped them talk about uh, whatever it was that they needed to talk about, like a marriage counselor, but rather mediator like a conduit, right? He mediated God's presence into the world through his own person because he was said to exist as God's idol or God's image. So the role then of a king who was made in the image of God in the ancient world was understood to have a priestly component too. It had a, it had a priestly element of mediating God's relationship to the rest of the world. So what I want to do here is show just two ways. There's actually nine ways in Genesis 2, but we're going to just focus on two because it would take too long to do all nine. Look at two ways where we see this priestly motif in what we've just read. Because there's some modern assumptions, as I said, it tends to mute this point. So I want to take some time to kind of unpack this and unveil this. So the first thing to note about Adam's priestly vocation is that he is given a priestly home, the Garden of Eden. Now in our day, we tend to think of gardens like grandma's tomato patch. All right? it's, a, it's a dirt plot in the backyard with rows of vegetables in it. But in the ancient Near East, back when Genesis was written, gardens were not thought of in that way. Gardens were a hallmark of royalty. They were a large park or a state. So we could think perhaps of like botanical gardens, right? Or maybe you can think of like, maybe you've heard of this, but, but um, Nebuchadnezzar with his famous hanging gardens. Right? So kings in the, in, back in the ancient Near Eastern context, which was part of the Bible was written, would have gardens that were royal estates. They were huge. They were big, depending on the size of the king and the kingdom. 
And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew term, gan, which is translated here as garden in Genesis 1 through 3, is used 19 other times throughout the Old Testament. And in all the times that it's used, nearly every occurrence, perhaps with maybe one or two, the word references a large park estate of a king. I think probably what happened was at some point the term was used garden and more of a humble association, like a paradise. And then translators realized that that wasn't the best term, but we're also comfortable with the term Garden of Eden that we've just left it. But it does confuse a little bit of what it is that Adam has been placed in. He's been placed into a large royal park estate. So these uh, large royal park estates would be next to the palace of the king. They would include forests of trees, rivers, landscaping, fruit trees, and even exotic animals, interestingly. So we can read about uh, the Jewish kings who all had royal gardens, or most of them, as far as we can tell, had royal gardens. We can see an example of King Solomon's royal garden in Ecclesiastes 2, 5 through 6. King Solomon, uh, speaking of himself, he said, I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself which, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. And he goes on to talk about how he gathered together exotic animals to live in his garden. So ganim, then, gardens, were a hallmark of royalty. So when we read that Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden with its forests, fruit trees, rivers, landscaping, and exotic animals, we should be thinking in the ancient Near Eastern view of gardens as a royal park estate. Now, of course, all this is in keeping with the idea that Adam was created as a king. So it makes sense that he would be given a royal park estate to live in. But there's another aspect of the ancient gardens that I want to highlight. Gardens were not just the gardens of the king. They were the place where the god or the gods would come and dwell upon the earth with human beings. So when the god or gods of this kingdom wanted to come down into the earth, they would come down into their garden, to this royal park estate. When a god came to earth, he came to the royal garden where his image and likeness dwelled, which is who the king was, right? Where his idol was. And that's what we see, actually, in Genesis 3, 8. If you want to just look over just a little bit in your text, Adam and Eve are out in their garden, and they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. God would come down and he would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. So the garden wasn't just the garden of the king. It was also the garden of the God, which is why the prophet Ezekiel three times refers to Eden as the garden of God. And because ancient gardens were dwelling places of the gods, they were frequently associated with ancient temples. So very frequently, temples for the god would be built in the center of the gardens, symbolizing God's presence there in the garden. And often they would build these temples, interestingly, upon springs or next to rivers that flowed out of the garden and into the domain of the kingdom. So here we've got this garden luxury estate that also, in Genesis 2, has a river that flows out of the center of it, out into the land around it, four rivers and the four ends of the earth. 
So gardens were not just luxury estates of the kings, but were the earthly homes of the heavenly gods and were the home base from which the gods' power and energy and presence extended out into the rest of the world. And they were the place where a priest would go to meet with the God of the garden and to be in his presence. So when Genesis 2 reveals Adam's uh, placement as a king made in the image of God and placed in a royal park estate, a garden sanctuary, it is highlighting the fact that Adam is there as a priest, as a mediator of God's presence out into the rest of the world. The second thing to note here that we see in Genesis 2 is the duty that Adam was assigned. So Adam is given a priestly home, the Garden of Eden, the sanctuary temple of Eden, but he's also given a priestly duty. In 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Now, these words, to work and to keep, they're common Hebrew words, and we find them hundreds of times all throughout the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. But here's the interesting thing to note is that when these two words are paired together in exactly like this way, they are only ever used to refer to the work that the, Le the Levitical priests did in the temple. So when Adam is said to be working and keeping the garden, it would have immediately registered in readers' minds that this combination of terms in this way is only used and only referencing the work that the temple priests would do. So in other words, when we read that Adam was appointed to work and keep the garden, the sanctuary of Eden, what we are reading is not a description of the work of a farmer or a modern gardener clipping branches and pulling weeds, but the work of a priest serving in the temple. Now, one might wonder, what purpose was there for a priest in the Garden of Eden? We read throughout the Old Testament, we see lots of priests, and priests, fundamentally, they did a number of things, but one of the main things they did is they mediated the relationship between a holy God and a sinful humanity. So if we don't have a sinful humanity yet, why do we have a priest king here in the garden, working and serving in the garden sanctuary. What work possibly did he have to do? The fact that we would wonder such a thing reveals, I think, a root misunderstanding about the nature of God and the nature of creation. Creation, right here from the very beginning, has always needed God even when it was brand spanking new and untainted. The Apostle Paul says, and I've quoted this a number of times here already in this series, but the Apostle Paul says of God that in him we live and we move and we have our being. And that's not just true of us as humans, that's true of everything that exists. Everything has its being and its existence in God. Paul says elsewhere that all things are from him and through him and to him. So from mountains to moons to mongooses to mankind, the universe is not some wind-up toy that God started 
and then released it, and now it's just kind of operating independently on his own, and he only needs to be interceded with when it, something gets broken, and then he'll step in and he'll fix it, as though he's just some sort of deistic deity that stands removed from what he has made. The living God is the life of the world. He is the fount and the foundation of all existence. Apart from him, all things are nothing. But how does creation access the divine life? How does creation participate in some way in God's own life? God, whose life is the life of the world, must somehow share his life with the creation that he's made. He must somehow breathe his breath of life into the world that he has made. And that's what we see in Genesis 2, verse 7. When God breathed the breath of life into Adam, the one whom he had made in his own image and likeness, he was breathing his life into the world. The term breath and the term spirit actually are the same root Hebrew word. Sometimes we translate it breath, sometimes we translate it spirit. But in the, in the Hebrew conception, it's essentially the same word. There really is no distinguishing between them. And so God, in breathing his spirit, his breath into Adam, he is putting his breath, his spirit, his life into the world that he has made. And insofar as Adam was the priest king of the world, he was the conduit through which the life of God flowed out into the world. So when Adam and Eve were told back, we saw last week in chapter 1, to multiply and fill the earth, they were being asked to extend the image of God out into the whole world, which is to say they were being asked to extend the life of God out into the whole world. As long as Adam stayed connected to God, he was able to mediate, to communicate, to send or share God's life to his world. But cut off from God, he had nothing to give. He had nothing to mediate or pass along. He was part of creation. How could he bring life to creation if he was just part of creation? So here's the punchline. Not only was Adam created to be the king of the world, he was also created to be the priest of the world. He and then Eve with him stood between God's heaven above and earth below. They dwelt in the temple garden of God and were appointed to serve him from there. And from there they were to multiply and fill the whole earth and to extend the life of God out into all of creation. So Genesis is teaching us something true about human beings, that human beings were created to be priests as the, one who me as the ones who mediate or communicate or pass along the life of God to each other and to the rest of all that God has made. Okay, now let's see if we can figure out what this means then for us today. I think that we don't typically think of ourselves as priests, even though we could get into some places in the New Testament that describe us as priests, not only as priests, but as a royal priesthood, as priest kings, priest kings and queens. But we don't often think of ourselves in this way, even as Christians. So a couple mistakes I think that we can make here when we think about humanity's role as priests. I'm not sure these qualify as ditches because they're not equal opposite, but there are two of them, all right? So two mistakes uh, that we can make. I think the first mistake we can make 
with this introduction of humanity uh, as priests in the world is that we can just completely overlook or forsake our role as priests to the world. And we can view the world fundamentally as something that exists for us, as something to consume, something to take. So we don't live life, we don't, I would say this, we don't view life as something to live for, only live in. Right? We don't approach the world with the mindset that we are bringing in ourselves a blessing, the presence of the living God, by which we then bless the world. Our whole orientation, if we neglect our role of priest, is to be consumeristic, not just in a modern material sense of too many trips to the mall, but in an ancient universal material sense. We are fundamentally consumers and not givers. And so we don't bring life to the world. We bring our own need. We bring our own cravings. So what is your orientation to the world this morning in light of humanity's calling as royal priests? Perhaps you've given no thought to blessing the world, but only using the world. Maybe you didn't put it in quite those terms, but as you reflect upon it this morning, it seems that that might be the case. There's no life or joy in that posture. And how empty is the life that only takes and never gives? We just know that to be true. We've lived it enough to experience in our own lives that if we move into relationships or into the world and our fundamental posture is to take and not to give, there is no joy in that. We think there's joy in that. That's why we're doing it. But there is actually no joy in that. This has been the fundamental human posture, the fundamental human mistake since the world began, to take for self and not give for others. And the wake of that ship as it cuts through the sea is death and violence and pain. And that's going to become very evident as we begin to move further through our story in the weeks to come. But there's a second mistake. So you might think to yourself, oh, I don't make that mistake. I think about how I can give. I'm a two on the Enneagram. Some of you know what that means. Some of you don't. It doesn't matter. Right? But you're like, I th I'm a giver. Right? I think about how I can give. And so you're, you're fundamentally thinking of yourself as a priest to the world. But, but here's another mistake we can make, is that we are trying to mediate the world to itself. Like, what am I bringing to bless the world? This is the person who does indeed desire to bless the world around them, but they are blessing, but they are only blessing the world with more of the world. They see the need of the world, and so they try to bless it with everything that they can find around them, but except God. So they're blessing the world with the world's money, the world's justice, the world's bounty, the world's prosperity. They're trying to mediate the world to itself. But the world is in need of a blessing. If the world could bless itself with itself, it wouldn't need you. In fact, it maybe wouldn't even need God. And that's how sometimes we think about this. You need to bring something from outside the world better than the world, or you're only trying to bless the world with itself. Blessing the world with more of the world is like trying to improve 
the paint color of your living room when the only paint you have is the same paint that you used to paint the room to begin with. You can't improve the world with more of the world. Christina Rosietti is a poet, and uh, she wrote a poem. I, someone sent this to me uh, just yesterday, and it fits, so I'm bringing it in here. She says this. She says, no thing is great on this side of the grave, nor anything of stable worth. What so is born from earth returns to earth. And isn't that the case, right? Even the best that this world has to offer if it comes from earth, it just returns back to earth. If it comes from the dust and it's severed from God, it just returns back to the dust. It's just passing through. I was thinking about kind of the, the futility of trying to serve the world uh, apart from God. And last night, uh, Jill and I were at the emergency room because our daughter got her finger caught uh, in a door, and so it all worked out fine. Uh, no one died, uh, rest assured. But uh, it, we were at the emergency room for about eight hours, you know, letting, going through all the drill uh, with it, right? And we got to the point where the doctors had come in and they were sewing uh, a little bit of stitches in the finger. And I was thinking to myself, these are such nice people. I'm so grateful for their skill, for their excellence. And I was thinking, I don't know that maybe this refutes my sermon because they are blessing. There's such a blessing here. But then I thought, you know, in 100 years, that finger is going to be dead. There is no life that they can give to that finger that can transcend the limits of that finger. Right? You can prop it up. We can rearrange the, the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. But the ship is going down, cut off from God. And so if we're trying to bring a blessing into the world, and the only thing that we have to bless the world with is just more of the world, we are trying, in essence, to bless a dying world with its own death. We can't bring a blessing to the world if all we have is the world. If you long to bring something meaningful and beautiful and lasting to the world, then you need to bring something beyond the dying goodness of the world. And what more meaningful and beautiful and lasting can you bring to the world than the life of God? So here's the good news this morning. If we are in Christ, if, if this morning you are in Christ, you are a believer, you don't have to make yourself into a priest king or a priest queen. Through our union with Christ and the gift of the divine breath, the Holy Spirit, the, the holy breath of God, has been placed into us, and we do indeed carry in ourselves the life of God. We don't have to make ourselves into something that we're not. We simply need to live into the reality of what we are. God has put his spirit inside of us. He has made us and is making us in his image. He has put his breath, his spirit inside of us, and he has sent us out into the world to carry in our person the, 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 the blessing and the life of God. We need to let go of our fear. We need to let go of our self-protection. We need to let go of our consumeristic mindset. And we need to let the life of God flow through us into the world. I don't know all the different ways that that can happen in your life. There are no doubt endless ways that that can happen in the lives of your children, in the lives of your friends, in the lives of your spouse, in the lives of the, even the world or in the structures around us with our creativity and our control and our beauty. 
We can bring all of this to the world. So embrace your identity as a Christian to be a priest of God to the world and ask God to show you how he wants you to live out your calling. Ask him to show you what stands in the way of people seeing Christ and the life of God in you. Spend some time praying about that. Take some time to sit with that and think about it. What blocks the life of Christ from going through you out into the world? What fears stand in the place? If you're not a Christian this morning, then let me say that God's calling to be priests, kings and queens of the world is as much for you as it is for Christians. This isn't a Christian calling. This is a human calling. Christians are those who have, in God and in Christ, are moving back and have re-accepted, as it were, the divine calling, the divine mandate. If you are not a Christian, then embrace God's calling in your life to be a priest, to be a conduit through which God's goodness flows into the world. Humble yourself and own his image and likeness. You can't be his priest if you insist upon being made in your own image. But if you're willing to humble yourself and to accept the fact that you are made in his image and likeness, to embrace his calling in your life to be priest, to be a recipient of his divine life. It's what Jesus refers to as being born again by the Spirit, being born again by the breath of God, and to be a conduit into the world of God's life because you have possessed it first for yourself. I encourage you in that direction. Adam was the great priest king made in the image of the invisible God. He was the Lord of all creation. Everything on earth was placed under his feet, whether things on the land or in the sea or in the air. He carried in himself the life of the world, and in him the world held together. And yet he lost the life of God. He failed as a priest king. And in ruining himself, he ruined his world. He ruined our world. That's for next week. But for now, I want to end by saying that not all was lost when Adam fell. Because another priest king has arisen. The one in whose image Adam was made. A greater priest king who was Lord of both heaven and earth. One who has come to reclaim the crown that Adam lost and to mediate the life of God that Adam forsook. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he speaks of this last and great priest king from Colossians. This priest king is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son of God, the creator of all things, he is the great and the truest priest king, of whom Adam was just an image He was just made according to that image. But Jesus is the image of God. He does not just mediate the life of the world. He is the life of the world. And this is who we worship 
this morning. This is the one in whose hope we place all of our lives and, and all of our ambitions. So as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, as we're introduced to, the, to truly the greatness of humanity, it is a picture of the greatness of the true human being who is himself also the Son of God, and he is the one that we worship this morning. So we're going to stand together. Why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for us, and we are going to sing of this great priest king in the world. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. When the first priest king could not hold the line, when he could not hang on to the life of God, when he failed in his royal calling, you sent the great priest king. And we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him. He is the one that we sing of and that we celebrate this morning. So in his name that we come to you today, amen.